Welcome to season three of the Bible for My Ordinary Life podcast. My name is Alicia Parker and I'll be your host. Are you interested in what the Bible really means or wondering how it's relevant to life today? If so, this podcast is for you. In this season, we are going back to where it all begins, the book of Genesis. No matter what your age or your background or your experience is with the Bible, I believe you can find something fresh and meaningful every time you study it. Hi, my name's Ariana. The Bible is for everyone. <laughs> Thanks, Ariana. All right, friends, let's get started. Hi, friends. Welcome to week three of our Genesis study. I hope you've had a chance to listen to the first two episodes for some context on what we've already learned. But if not, I'm going to do a quick review, so it's okay. You can go back and catch those first two episodes anytime. That's the beauty of podcasts. Genesis 1 might be a familiar story, especially if you grew up in church. But if you really read it closely, you may pick up some nuances that you missed in Sunday school. At least, that's been my experience. And I found the same to be true with Genesis 2. The more I read over it, the more I realized there were things in there that I had missed. So let's just do a quick recap of our first two episodes. I didn't introduce this concept in either of those two recordings, but I want to point out an interesting pattern that exists in Genesis 1 as we review it. It's well established that Genesis 1 outlines six days of creation, but these six days can be broken into two sets of three and a pattern emerges. Day one through three is one set of days, and then there's this parallel in the creative acts in days four through six. Let me explain. Day one describes one act of creation. God creates light and separates it from darkness. Then in day four, there's one act of creation, and God creates the sun, moon, and stars. And the author uses this Hebrew word meaning light bearers to describe the sun, moon, and stars. These celestial objects rule the day and the night, which were created and established in day one. Now let's talk about day two. Day two describes a second act of creation. God creates the expanse or sky. He separates it from the waters. The parallel day is day five, in which God populates the sky and the water with animals birds, and fish. Okay, day three. Day three describes two acts of creation. First, God separates the waters from the land and the waters are gathered into seas. And then God creates plants. Day six, the parallel day, also has two acts of creation. God fills the land with animals and he creates man. The humans are told to subdue and rule the land and all its creatures. So we have this pattern of two sets of three established in the creation week. And if you are a first time listener, let me just pause here and mention that one of the things I try to remind us of here on this podcast is that the text was written for us, but wasn't written to us. And what I mean by that is that we aren't the original audience. So when we read this, we have to try to think like in ancient Hebrew. And I know you may have no idea how to even begin to do that. 
But at the very least, keep reminding yourself that you can't put your modern Western spin on the text. You see, the ancient Hebrews would have passed these stories down orally, and eventually someone, and it's probably Moses, penned this book of Genesis. But it would be hundreds of years before chapters and verses were established. Unfortunately, the seven-day creation story doesn't wrap up neatly at the end of chapter one. So when I say chapter two starts in a bad place, I'm not criticizing the original author. The first three verses of chapter two really contextually belong with the narrative of chapter one. And we haven't had a chance to talk to these verses yet. So we are going to start there today now that we've recapped the six days of creation. I'll read these verses from the English Standard Version, and it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. It's pretty clear that this creation story is being wrapped up here in these verses. Verse 1 says it plainly, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. In the next verse, we get some information about the seventh day, which, again, if you've been around church long enough, you know about the Sabbath. It's a day of rest. Established because God rested on the seventh day. But as I promised, there's more to this than perhaps what you might have remembered from Sunday school. First, let me ask you, did you notice the repetition in these verses? Let me read verse 2 again, and I'm sure you'll pick it up. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. The author is establishing the importance of the seventh day, and that on it, God rested. Now, seven is a symbolic number used throughout the Bible. Its meaning is really established for the first time right here in these verses. It's the number of completion. If you did a quick Google search of the phrase, the number seven in the Bible, you would be provided with pages of explanation and examples of where the number seven is used all over the Bible to symbolize this very thing. Interestingly enough, the very first verse of the Bible is made of seven Hebrew words, but I don't want to make this all about numerology here. It's pretty fascinating, but that's not our purpose. I just want us to pay attention to repeated words and phrases in scripture. Repetition means something is important to the author. So the seventh day associated with God resting is important. Now verse three actually gives us several things that God does on the seventh day. Listen as I read it again for the actions that are listed. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So did you catch the actions? God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. As some versions say he sanctified it. This last day of the creation week was set apart by God. That's what sanctification means, to set something apart and to make it special. And in this case, holy. In the previous six days, God saw his work and determined that it was good. But on this day, God blessed and set apart 
the day. It also says God rested because he stopped working. Now, this cycle of working for six days and resting for one will be formally established for humans in the book of Exodus. God will give his people 10 commandments, and one of them will be to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And of course, as humans do throughout the years, the Jewish leaders would take this simple command and warp it. And by the time Jesus comes to earth, the Jews aren't even allowed to carry a mat on the Sabbath. And Jesus would buck their system of legalism and he'd pick grain to feed his disciples and he heals people who'd been afflicted from birth, all of this on the Sabbath, really offending the religious leaders of his day. But I digress. Let's get back to Genesis where the Sabbath begins. So creation week is finalized with the seventh day and God setting it apart, making it holy, stopping his work, rests. Now, Genesis 2-4 would truly be a more natural place to actually start chapter 2. There's a sentence here that's very similar to Genesis 1-1. It's like a topic sentence that introduces the next narrative that's about to be told. I really like how the Net 2 version translates this in English. It says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. And the note in this translation is really interesting. It says the following, if you bear with me while I read this. The Hebrew phrase, Ella Toldat, is traditionally translated as, These are the generations of because the noun was derived from the word beget. Its usage, however, shows that it introduces more than genealogies. It begins with a narrative that traces what became of the entity or individual mentioned in the heading. In fact, a good paraphrase of this heading would be, this is what became of the heavens and the earth. For what follows is not another account of creation, but a tracing of events from creation through the fall and judgment. This section extends from Genesis 2-4 through Genesis 4-26. Now, I like that translation and that note because if you read it in English and you have the translation that says, this is the generations, you immediately go to humans and ancestry. But this section isn't about human ancestry. It's about introducing what happens on earth after creation. If we read the Bible like it was an oral narrative to tell the origin story of the Hebrew people, it makes sense that this is a next section. Now, some people have interpreted Genesis 2 as a second, completely different creation story. But I think if the writer had intended to tell a story of two different creations, that would have been clearer in the purpose and in the writing. So when I read articles or commentaries suggesting that Genesis 2 might indicate that there was a second full creation, I have a hard time feeling confident that the author is interpreting scripture as it's intended. Let's actually take a look at this next narrative in Genesis 2. If possible... Pause this podcast and read Genesis 2, 4 through verse 17. And as you read it, think about the emphasis on plants and gardens. 
I think this is the same exact creation story as we saw in Genesis 1, but with a different emphasis and perspective. Now, if you weren't able to pause and read Genesis 2, I will read those verses shortly. But before I do, imagine I told you a story about my first teaching job. I might include details about my very first interview for that job. I mean, I even remember what I wore to that interview. I remember what I brought to that interview. I can tell you who did the interview. I might tell you about that first classroom I was assigned to and how I decorated it. Or I might show you some details of that very first week, some of my feelings and experiences. And after I told that story, you'd really understand my very first teaching job. Now, imagine I told you a story about how my teaching career led me to being a school administrator. I might still mention some details about that first job, but I wouldn't tell it the same way. And I would include more details about how that job led to other jobs and eventually to school administration. It's not two distinct career paths. It's the same person. It's the same basic story, but it's two different tellings. I think that's what's happening in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Let's take a look. I'll read just the first couple of verses and pay attention to the discussion about the earth and the plants. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Now no shrub of the field had yet grown on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. And there was no man to cultivate the ground. Springs would well up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the soil of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. All right, so let's pause here. And we know from our earlier discussion that verse four is the opening sentence. It's like a topic sentence about this next narrative. Verse five orientates us to a time when no shrub of the field had yet grown and no plants had sprouted. It also tells us that during this time it had not rained and there weren't any humans to cultivate the land. Verse 6 tells us how there is a spring that waters the earth. This spring is how the plants would survive and propagate, even though this is early on and the plants haven't grown from the seeds of the very first plants God created. That's a lot of information to help the reader or the listener to be thinking of the time of creation. But it's not an exact retelling of the creation story. So if you knew my detailed story about my first job as a teacher already, and I was going to tell you the story of how my career changed over time, I might mention some details about that first job in the classroom I was in, but I wouldn't repeat the whole story I already told you. In the same way, I think the author is giving us a setting, and he's focusing on a few key things, namely plants and how they were and were not watered. This is because, as we will see, this story involves Eden. And the context of plant life and cultivation is key to understanding this portion of the story. Now, in verse 7, we learn that God created man from the ground, and God breathed the breath of life into him. And I want to come back to this verse in just a minute or two, because there's some neat Hebrew wordplay here I'd like to share with you. But let's keep going with these next few verses and watch how this plant and garden theme develops. 
I'm going to start reading again in verse 8. The Lord God planted an orchard in the east, in Eden, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow from the soil, every tree that was pleasing to look at and good for food. Now the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil were in the middle of the orchard. Did you notice that the version I read says God planted Eden as an orchard? The translators of this version left a note saying that they chose orchard even though garden is the more traditional translation because it's clear from the text that it's an orchard of fruit trees. And I think there are some unanswered questions here about when this was created. Was Eden part of the original day three creation of plants? Or did God plant this garden after the six days of creation and after the first Sabbath? And people have different views on the when of this. But if you don't mind me saying it again, I don't think the purpose here is to give us a step-by-step how to make a universe guidebook. So the details about the how and the when are not always clear. The purpose is to provide a narrative about our origins and to describe the God who created our world and us. So the author makes this point that the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow in the garden that he planted. He specifically points out the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. These two trees were in the center of the orchard or garden. And they are important later in the narrative, but for now, we're just getting this descriptive setting. Which continues with details about water. Remember how in the opening few verses it was noted that there was no rain yet on the earth? The plants that God had created were watered by springs which welled up from the earth. Now here we get some more details about water and its role. Here's verses 10 through 14. Now a river flows from Eden to water the orchard, and from there it divides into four hedge streams. The name of the first is Pishon. It runs to the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is pure. Pearls and lapis lazuli are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It runs to the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs along the east side of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. So you may have heard of the Tigris and Euphrates. These are two rivers we can actually find on our maps today. But Pishon and Gihon are not rivers we can identify, and we aren't even sure if our Tigris and Euphrates are the same as the rivers mentioned here. Remember, this is a description of the world before the flood. The flood completely changed the topography of the earth. So there's really no way to say for certain exactly where these rivers were located. But let's try to think like an ancient Hebrew and consider their culture. Many Bible scholars will agree that wherever these rivers were located, they flowed out of Eden to the four major areas in the Hebrew world. I tend to agree with those who think they flowed to Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and Jerusalem. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and Israel were the major players in Hebrew history. But let's also think about the purpose of this narrative. The author is describing the setting in which God placed humans and gave them their charge to rule the earth and to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth. 
So we have this background on how the earth had plants, but they weren't yet self-propagating, and a spring watered the plants from below the ground. But then God plants a garden or an orchard, and there's this river that flows out of this garden, Eden, and branches off to four different lands. This origin story is communicating that Eden was the central hub of life and vitality for humanity. But also that life would be sustained by water, which flowed out from Eden to the surrounding areas. We already know from the Creation Week story that God tells humans to be fruitful and multiply. So he wants to ensure the filling of the earth and the survival of humanity by way of providing water to the earth. And that source of water began with the river in Eden. Now I mentioned a few minutes ago that I wanted to revisit verse seven. I want to read it twice, once with the net two version and once in the ESV. There's only one difference and I'll emphasize it so that you hear it. Here's the net two. The Lord God formed the man from the soil of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now here's the ESV. The Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Hopefully you caught the main difference. One version said man was formed from soil and the other from dust of the ground. Now in your English speaking mind, how do soil and dust differ? In my mind, soil is wet and water is involved. Dust is dry. And this word that's used here in Hebrew is the word Adamah. And what God forms with Adamah is Adam, or as we say in English, Adam. I want you to hear the Hebrew wordplay again, though. The verse says, the Lord God formed the Adam from the Adamah. And this word for soil or dust has this imagery of clay. So I get this sense that God mixes water and earth, Adamah, and creates Adam, who we call Adam, the first man. Then he places Adam in the midst of Eden, which literally means pleasure. And try to think about what we've read today, just like an ancient Hebrew would have. If you were an ancient Hebrew, your contemporaries would have their own creation story. The Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they all had their own gods and their own stories. But if you're an ancient Hebrew, your story is different. One God, loving and kind, creating provision of food, water, and abundance in a place called pleasure. So this narrative is just getting started, but our time in this episode is coming to a close. We'll keep going in our next episode about how this story unfolds, and you probably know some of the details around that. But we'll look specifically at the creation of Adam, or Adam, the responsibilities God gave him, and the creation of his wife, Eve. But today, let's really think about what we learn about the creator from these verses. 
I don't think this is a second creation story. I think a backdrop is being set about God's intention with this garden or orchard. His vision for humanity was that of abundance and provision in a place called pleasure. This is the God of the Hebrews. And he's the same today as he was in Genesis. Now, our world looks a whole lot different than the garden or the orchard of Eden. But I've got good news for you. God is going to restore Eden. Let me show you. I want to read from the last book of the Bible. I don't often do this where I skip around to different scriptures, but today I think this is really important. I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Here we go. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. My friends, God will remake Eden. And we who follow Jesus will live with him there. It gives me goosebumps to even think about this as a reality. I once heard a popular Bible teacher say that we are living a life between two gardens. Our time on this earth is a stretch of time between the original Eden and the one to come. So when this life gets you discouraged or frustrated or angry or weary, think about Eden. Think about this luscious orchard with a river flowing from it to water and sustain life on earth, a place called pleasure. And if you know how the story goes, you know that the humans get expelled from Eden. And that's coming in a future podcast. We most certainly are not living in Eden right now. But God's original vision of Eden will be restored. We are in between two gardens. I hope you're encouraged by this. I'm so glad you're on this journey through the book of Genesis with me. And I hope you'll tune in for future discussions on this incredible story of our origins. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoy what you heard. Don't forget to leave a review and connect with us on Instagram. The Bible is for everyone.